Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And we're also perhaps being heard on your local community radio station. And my name is David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And uh, we're going to do climate news just just ripping, just, ooh, just uh, ripping off the internet. You know how it is. And uh, Stefan's going to interview... Cynthia Kaufman. Cynthia Kaufman, who has written a book from her, what I imagine to be a lush and beautiful homestead in California. To be honest, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Uh, who knows? Uh, but yes. Um, called The Sea is Rising. And so are we. And so are we. A Climate Justice Handbook. A Climate Justice Handbook. Yeah. And this is a good book. Yeah. It's great. You had a good conversation with her anyway. Really good conversation, actually. Nice. And uh, that's what we'll be listening to soon. But first, we're going to do a little bit of news. And even before that, Stefan was going to say something very boring about taxes. Wow. And yeah. I was going to talk about Mark Ruffalo. Oh, wow. Climate cutie Mark Ruffalo. I think this is in My tax thing is interesting. So briefly, I did want to talk about the idea of windfall taxes because they're, they've just come back into the news because they're being considered in a few different places, partially due to the increase of money that's coming to oil companies because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the idea, basically, very simply, is a windfall profits tax is a higher tax rate on profits that ensue from a sudden windfall gain to a particular company or industry. And so the idea here would be, why should all of these oil companies that have done nothing different suddenly be making hundreds of millions of dollars more per uh, I don't know, per month or per, who knows how much like, why should they be making dramatically more money just because of this invasion when that money could be potentially used to either help people who are being hurt by this or, you know, at least used in a way that could support the general populace rather than being siphoned off to these industries. You know, everyone around the world now who has to drive is paying dramatically more money for a gallon of gasoline and that and so and all that money is just going to is getting siphoned off into oil companies and it's only because of this invasion that that's, that's occurred and so the idea here is that you would tax that windfall of money from them and bring it into the public coffers to be used for the general good of society or for example helping uh with you know helping the refugees themselves who are now fleeing their country I've heard about the concept of a windfall tax before, but I haven't actually had a, had a real conversation with somebody about it. What I want to do now is go and see, and I'm sure there's a bunch of amazing people that have written a lot about the concept of a windfall tax and then like coupled it with like really good thoughts around like disaster capitalism and that sort of like exploitation that happens within sort of like that realm. So like a fantastic idea, hope more people start to campaign on it. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, climate community. Let's devs get on that. Um, yeah. Can't we just like like hear hear more people start to talk about this? It's a fantastic concept. Yeah. And it, it uh, sorry, briefly before I go back to you, I just want to note that it's also could be used in other scenarios. For example, there have been calls from the Scottish National Party uh, in the UK to actually use this idea to go after the fact that all of the giant tech billionaires made a bajillion dollars over COVID. And so could we, you know, apply the same concept to these people who made a ton of money like Amazon? Um, once again, sort of entirely unrelated to their own existence be due to a t terrible occurrence and, you know, bring that back in to, you know, help address the cost of living crisis that we might be seeing, again, across across the world. And why are ta gases so much more expensive? Uh, because because how much gas comes from Russia that is now being sanctioned. So you can no longer get We're refusing the gas from Russia. Therefore, we're paying more people paying more for it exactly it, and although i will say that for some reason there has been a bit of a decoupling between the price per barrel of oil and gasoline prices which implies that oil companies are actually even further gouging people just because they can and that oil prices of the barrel of oil have not risen to the same to the same extent that the price of gasoline has so all the more reason to tax that money um Okay. Yeah, no, I was just going to really, really briefly mention some fun stuff came out of, um, the rad folks at, um, stand.earth today. Um, they had Mark Ruffalo and a bunch of other really sort of like highfalutin uh, names and figures, um, in sort of like Hollywood and pop culture, but also like 
um, folks that sort of like tend to operate within the climate community a little bit. Um, they were launching, I think, what did they call it? I'm literally reading a tweet right now. Um, it's like a climate pack to defeat, um, political allies of the fossil fuel industry, which is like kind of cool. Um, so like it's talking about a pack within, um, the concept of elections, elections, um, like campaigning and organizing and funding. It's like, you, you know, that there's like the super PACs that are bad because it's just coalitions of gazillionaires coming together and, um, and, tossing money at parties to like fund bad stuff. And now this is like the flip side of that. It's like Jane Fonda and some folks forming a, a or launching a, a climate pack um, to, to try to, how they phrase it, defeat the political allies of the fossil fuel industry, which is kind of cool. Um, and that also came out within the context of um, some really good stuff uh, on the No More Dirty Banks campaign, um, which is targeting uh, banks like RBC and it's, it's American subsidiary, Citibank, I think not CITI, but there's like another version of Citibank that's a subsidiary of RBC in the States. And, um, and it's, and they're calling for them to, uh, like divest from coastal gas link and, um, and in that way stand with wet sweat and land defenders. So sorry, that was kind of, that was a bit of a two header story. Cause there's a lot of stuff happening apparently in climate justice activist, Mark Ruffalo's life today. Um, <laughs> But yeah, just wanted to highlight those two things because those are kind of cool. Not because Mark Ruffalo is doing them cool because they're happening. Although I do like the idea of having a Ruffalo report from time to time. So into it. Yeah. I'll we'll have to check back in on the Ruffalo. Now, now I just want Ruffles though. Sorry. We'll combine that section with Stefan's vegan bashing section and we'll call it Ruffle My Pleathers. <laughs> Uh, hooligans, vigilantes, climate people in Britain uh, have been have started a campaign of deflating S the tires of random SUVs on the streets, and they leave a little note that says uh, your your gas guzzling vehicle sucks or whatever uh, afterwards. So people wake up to their SUV tires deflated, one of one or two or all of them, which is nice. Do I think it's funny? Yes. Do I think it's like <laughs> truly effective practice that will result in any sort of long-term change? Not so much, but like. If I can take a second to use this to at least harp on a, what I think is actually an important topic, which is how much, especially trucks have decided they need to be bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that they are just likely going to kill random people. Like some of the new trucks are out of this world. And so, you know, the fight to reduce car size is an important What do you, what do you mean kill random people? You're saying the trucks are so large, you're just not going to know if you've hit somebody. Oh, yeah, for sure. You're talking about shipping trucks. No. The Stephen King book, Christine, about like the rogue car that just turns herself on and then like murders. <laughs> I mean, those are those are Teslas. Um, no, no, I mean, I mean, there are trucks that are so tall now and they're designing them to be so tall that you literally would not be able to see anyone under five feet in front like of Like regular them. personal vehicles. Like regular personal vehicles. They're death machines. Have you ever seen those? Some people, it's like, there'll be like those like infographics where it shows like, this is a normal car and it's like three babies sitting in front of the car before you can see the baby that you would hit and then you get like a regular SUV and it's like 12 babies or something insane like that all right so here's a here's a title I just wanted to, this is just a nice uh, headline from Grist the Air Force wants to blow up toxic military waste on a beach in Guam you know it's all you need to know it's all in the title very rarely do we get nice headline titles that explain everything in one sentence. So there you go. I was like, the subheading is somewhat also useful here. Which is well, obviously, the, the people who are actually living there are like, we we want to sue you to stop this. Okay, so there you go. Yeah. Uh, but this is just an example. This is this is the the U.S. territory of Guam, and we really don't hear anything about U.S. territories in our media. It's almost it's almost as if there is no American empire in the way that we learn about this continent and so forth. So this is Guam, just a territory. Joe Biden can te technically controls it. It's south of Japan. It's tropical. And they're just going to blow up toxic waste. And there were in the obviously the people there are worried about the, the fumes just sort of moving around and, and ruining stuff. The interview that I, I have with Cynthia Kaufman goes into some of the facts and some of the ways in which, you know, climate justice shows up in these days. And this is an a very, very clear example of the ways in which, you know, 
indigenous communities and non-states are fulsomely ignored uh, by the American state in terms of their actual needs and considered, you know, fully considered. There's no way they'd be blowing up a bunch of toxic on a beach in California. It's only because it is, you know, because it is not, you know, it's only because of where it is and who it would be affecting that they're even considering this. And so this is another example of environmental racism and the ways that it plays out. Okay. All right. So there's flooding, huge flooding in Australia. Uh, New South Wales, some are saying it's once in a thousand year flooding. Some are saying uh, it's like the worst in 10 years. Other things that it was the worst in Australia's history. So I don't know the measurements they're taking, but these are whole suburban homes that are being submerged. Like not just the uh basements but like the whole things are flooding and it's gonna take them years to clean up and yeah just huge flooding in queensland poor queensland they can't catch a break well you know what of course it's like fires and the erosion of topsoil and trees and forests begets flooding like it's it's not like it's random that oh man Queensland can't catch a break it's like it's cyclical it's we can predict that these things will continue to happen in worse and worse sort of degrees in Queensland because it's like this feedback loop has already been kickstarted, but like, Oh boy, you do feel bad for Queensland. I didn't hear about this until a colleague of mine who is from Brisbane posted about it and about how his family was so deeply impacted. And the fact that something that this drastic could, could be pushed off my news feeds to me was very concerning. (laughs) Because, like, this is something I presumed I would have heard about as, like, even leading up to it, let alone well into it. Well, and especially when, and, and like, and I, and I, and I mean this in, like, a bad way, like, especially because it's happening in, like, a, a relatively, well, no, a very wealthy white English speaking nation. Like if, if this is, if this isn't showing up on our news feeds and this isn't showing up in the news cycle when it's happening to white wealthy people, like, Geez, what what the frick else am I missing out on? Oh yes, these are very large, expensive houses submerged in water for sure. Um, I'm gonna mention. So I'm just gonna mention these th- next couple, three stories in a row. Uh, U.S. offshore wind auction has hit a record: four point three seven billion dollars in bids off the coast of New York and New Jersey. So huge bidding on offshore wind in the states. Uh, solar energy. Uh, is America's fastest-growing electricity source, officially. And BlackRock, uh, who was... The BlackRock is the huge financial group, investing group, that was making climate statements last year or the year before, saying that they would start forcing their investors or start changing their portfolios or start prioritizing climate interests or something. But they've recently come out saying, uh, no, in fact, we want obviously want to support fossil fuels because Texas came out with that law recently where they said that they were going to blacklist uh, any financial firms. They were no longer going to invest through financial firms that uh, they would claim to be anti-fossil fuel or boycotting fossil fuels. So BlackRock has had to tell Texas specifically, no, we support fossil fuels in in order to stay on the uh, good side of uh, of Texas, of the Texas government. Again, to, to preview the conversation I have uh, with, with Cynthia in a, in a bit, one of the things she talks about is the importance of challenging power and the ways in which our current power structures do not want to be undone. And this kind of example of BlackRock, a gigantic financial firm, having to basically, you know, do something it it believes is against its financial interest just to avoid being attacked like by the Texas government is not the idea of a free market right this is this is the government doing exactly what every conservative would if it was done in the other way would think was terrible which is basically directly demand that firms you know, follow their guidelines in some fashion and using that power to push again, you know, to support fossil fuels continuing. And that is just, 
like a distressing, um, but also be an example of exactly what we're up against, right? It's not just enough that solar is now you know cheaper than keeping coal online. It's not enough that wind uh, th- that wind power is, is is decreasing in price and increasing in availability. We also have to understand that there are such entrenched interests actively undermining these things that we could be in a place where it would be 100% cheaper to move to a green energy, and we still might not because of these things, because of the ways that fossil fuels are controlling so many of so many governments. We almost need to like bookmark this story because it is such a good demonstration that like, yeah, there's a whole lot of folks out there, um, whether or not they maybe necessarily align themselves with a conservative party ideologically, but like there is, there's still this myth of green capitalism out there and the argument that like you, that we don't need to regulate things. All we need to do is make sure that solar and wind are cheap enough. And then the market will naturally turn itself over. And that's just not true. And this is a perfect demonstration of that. These companies are going to hold on with their, with all that they can. And the governments that like that, um, directly benefit from those companies continuing to prosper will also do everything they can to keep them in power. So it's like, yeah, no, it's, there's no such thing as green capitalism. This is a good example of why that's not a thing and why really our only path forward, as we know here on the green majority is, um, eco-socialism. Oh, here we go. Hop on the bandwagon. Just on the table, son. All right. So conservative MP, Michael Chong, uh, has re- a couple weeks ago in Parliament was like, I think we should fast track natural gas pipelines to the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic, Atlantic, yeah. right? Uh, in order to sell natural gas to Europe now that they're not getting it, f- now that they're currently not getting it from Russia. So this is uh, Michael Chong. He's like, a, he was endorsed by Green Pack. So, and he was considered sort of a, climate champion quote-unquote within the conservative party and now he has said that we should capitalize on the war in ukraine by selling gas to europe scummy dumb disappointing Uh, not surprising um but it was funny because i remember hearing about this story when it initially sort of came out last week um about the conservatives sort of like really opportunistically being like hey guys the only way to defeat russia is by making sure that Canadian oil independence is a thing. And I mean, we knew immediately that this would be the dumb talking point. We knew immediately that somebody would bring some sort of bill like this to the front. It's just a shame it was Michael Chong, because I'm reminded of, as I joked before we before we turned on our mics, turned on our mics, it, it does remind me of the Tyra Banks, we were all rooting for you gift. So um, I will be uh, Slack DMing Raisha, our, our social media uh, person to, <laughs> to make us a meme. Um, yeah, it's like I said, not surprising, incredibly annoying, incredibly frustrating. And like, I know I know this is a narrative that a lot of um, sort of organizers and activists have been trying really hard to push back on. And actually a lot of really good journalists as well have tried to push back on this like really, really false narrative. Um, so good on them because like, yeah, it's, it's a silly concept for a lot of reasons um, and sort of a false narrative for a lot of reasons, not least of which because it's like, cool, war is happening literally right now in Ukraine. How long do you think it's going to take to approve, build a pipeline, get the get the oil or get the natural gas over there, ship it over to Europe? Like it's 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 opportunistic, a silly argument. And they know it. They know it is. They know the, the people, the Michael Chong's of the world who put forward legislation like this aren't doing it in good faith. They're doing it anyway. I'll stop ranting because I'm sure Stefan has something more insightful to say. For those who aren't fulsomely aware, a lot of the oil we have now that we could just pump more, right? Like there are like Saudi Arabia and OPEC could just decide to pump dramatically more oil and reduce prices. They're choosing not to right now because this makes them more money in the same way that other, you know, that yes, many places are, are currently reliant on the natural gas here, but creating natural gas pipelines that will get us more natural gas in five, 10 years will not solve the problem we're currently facing. And what you can do dramatically faster is scale out more regional distributed energy systems, which are good on everything. So instead of like spending the next five years trying to build one pipeline, maybe spend the next five years investing enough solar panels, which are now very cheap, to you know, line the same amount of area and you probably will have, you'll you'll certainly have a better climate solution and it will serve, you know, the distributed energy and you won't have to worry about any version of this happening again because any type of, anything that requires this kind of 
anything that requires a supply chain like this could get disrupted. And so if energy close to you is the way to do it, which overwhelmingly is renewable. And, and, it, would, and it would ultimately serve the same purpose. If instead of providing Ukraine or the rest of Europe with a bunch of cheap oil to counteract the effects of like losing Russian oil, wouldn't the better thing to do be to help and help them invest in, in clean energy? Anyway, we know this to be true. We know this is a thing. And anyway, we don't need to belabor the point any further. All right. This is going to be our last story. This is from the Energy Mix, uh, March 11th. They write, deadbeat fossils owe $253 million in unpaid taxes despite surging oil prices. So this is in Alberta, uh, and there are various fossil fuel companies who are just not paying taxes to various rural municipalities or um, local governments. And uh, they write that uh, in some communities, they rely on these taxes for up to 60 to 90 percent of the local tax base. And the CBC writes that uh, Alberta is going to end up with insolvent municipalities if nothing changes. But some of these corporations, uh, it's hard to get money from them because they happen to just be not faceless, nameless, numbered companies with Cayman Islands accounts. However, there is apparently an easy way that the Alberta Energy Regulator could address the problem uh, if the provincial government had the will to take action. Um, And they write, a good start would be for the Alberta Energy Regulator to rely on municipal data on on companies' tax status rather than trusting them to self-report. So it's it's like a situation where the government could just, uh, you know, do their job. But uh, instead we have these... uh, (laughs) Uh, overseas tax havens. Yet again, this is what's amazing about the Canadian oil industry somehow, is that when the price was negative dollars back at the beginning of COVID, that was an argument to support Canadian oil. When the price is a bajillion dollars, that's the argument to support Canadian oil. So no matter what is occurring, apparently, the answer is give more money to these oil companies. And also, no matter what is occurring, these oil companies consistently refuse to either to pay their taxes in full and, and clean up their abandoned oil wells. Like... How much more information do you need? If, if How many industries could get away with basically always asking for more money and never fulfilling their obligations to pay, pay back? It is exclusively the power of the oil industry that allows them to do this. And I'm sure people will hear this and be like, these other industries do, the, do this too, which is great. Regulate all the industries better. I'm fine with that. But it's amazing to me how no matter what happens the answer is give more money to the oil companies while they continue to actually where they continue to fail to actually pay back taxes or you know for these abandoned wells it's like the exact same approach i take to like ordering takeout it's like i had a bad day order takeout i had a really good day order takeout i did so (laughs) much work today order takeout i did no work today order takeout it's like that but at a geopolitical scale with 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 much more intense ramifications. Yeah, and, and I, I'm pretty sure that your takeout is not leading to the climate crisis. Yes, it is. I mean, it depends on the approach. <laughs> yeah, depends on the argument you make. No, but it, but it isn't. Sorry to confirm, we're not arguing that your single-use plastic is what's responsible for choking a turtle or whatever. Yeah. The yeah. like, yeah, sure, cut down on them. I'm here with a fantastic interview with Cynthia Kaufman, who's an author of several books, and her most recent is The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a Climate Justice Handbook. Thanks so much for joining us, Cynthia. Thanks for having me, Stefan. Amazing. Thanks so much for being here. And so perhaps first as a way of introduction, maybe you can let us know how you got involved in the climate movement in the first place, and then we'll dive into the book. Sure. So I have been interested in and involved with climate work for a very long time, but I got especially more involved around 2013 around the fossil fuel divestment movement. And that's where most of my activism has been in the last years. And the reason I wrote the book is because I feel like as the climate crisis is accelerating, there are a lot of people who are concerned, but don't quite know how to get involved. And there's a lot of sort of rhetoric out there that says the most important things to do are the things you do as an individual. 
And I've been very interested in the way kind of entrenched systems of power are getting in the way of our ability to make the transition. And so I wanted to write a book that really helped everybody who knows that the problem is serious and who is ready to think about it through the lens of power, how everything they need to know from beginning to end to be part of the movement to challenge those operations of power that are getting in the way. Awesome. And so in that answer, you mentioned power. And that is also actually how you open up the book, this sort of call to challenge power. So why do you think that is centrally important in the fight for climate justice? Because if you, if you think about the situation we're in right now, the scientists and the engineers have done tremendous, tremendous work such that we are completely ready for a transition to a very good society for everybody in the world that is sustainable. But why aren't we getting there at the speed we need, which is really a breakneck speed? It's because of the stalling power, mostly of the fossil fuel industry, but also of agribusiness. And so understanding that then means we need to take really seriously, we basically need to take the power away of those forces that are slowing the transition. And so many people, you know, if you read the books of like, for example, Bill Gates or Michael Bloomberg and Carl Pope and folks like that, they just talk about all the wonderful technological things that are going to get us there. And yeah, those things are great and they're important, but that's not what's slowing the progress. Yeah, for sure. I want to get into sort of that technophobia that particularly, you know, those in power can sort of push responding to climate change. But before I do, I don't want to get at least one more term out there into the understanding of the world, which is that you talk about climate change as a threat multiplier. And that was something that also was talked about a bit in terms of COVID, similar type of concept. And so I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So, you know, the answer I just gave you has to do with capital, right? When you think of like the forces we're up against, but then when you think about the impacts, that the impacts are very, very disproportionate in terms of race and class, right? So you think about right now, there's this globally that the whole entire continent of Africa is under threat for the agricultural systems, you know, becoming unsustainable and things like that. You know, in a continent that's contributed the least to the problem is the most impacted by the problem. And so when you think about situations like that, or, and I've got a bunch of examples in the book, like, you know, I live in Northern California and the fires have been devastating. And in places where people have money, it was devastating to have your house burned down, but you probably had insurance and could therefore live somewhere where your house was being rebuilt and rebuild your house. Whereas if you were a renter or you were a marginal homeowner and therefore you didn't have insurance, you lost everything. Yeah. Something I've been harping on for years is the ways in which insurance is going to end up becoming truly untenable for so many of these areas. You know, how many people currently are living in places where very soon, if not already, they won't be able to get insurance. And then if you live with places you can't get insurance, then you have no way to build equity on your home because when the flood or the fire comes through, you're done. And to me, that only will serve to drastically exacerbate if the rich can withstand this and get more money back and the poor lose all of the savings and equity they'd already put in every time a disaster like this happens, you're only going to see a, a furthering divide between the rich and the poor. Absolutely. Absolutely. So class and race really, really matter for the climate crisis. And if you look at kind of polls of who cares, you'll find in the United States anyway, the polls of people's concern about the crisis are really disproportionate that people of color understand the crisis more deeply and are more prepared to kind of take firm action and, and really understand the nature of what we're up against. Yeah, for sure. And so maybe let's flip back to that conversation that we almost began and then I paused, which is about the fact that we really do have a lot of the answers right now. And the idea that we can innovate our way out of it, to me, feels a little bit more like a call to inaction. When you hear the Bill Gates of the world coming out and saying, it's okay, we have all these great technologies coming out, that doesn't really hold a candle when you look at all the technologies we currently have, heat pumps, geothermal, Solar is now cheaper than even keeping coal online, and yet we are not seeing them scaled in the pace we need. And so there has to be something else. And I think you already identified that something else is the entrenched interests. But I wonder if you can talk more about that. 
Yeah. And I really agree with the way you say that is books like Bill Gates's book are calls to inaction. They're basically saying, don't you wear your pretty little head about this. You know, us experts have this under control. And it's like, yeah, again, I really agree with you that the technologies are all there, but they are not being implemented at speed and scale. And we all know that. And so then if you look at, well, why are they not being implemented at speed and scale? It's because the legislation to, to adopt those policies, you know, just like look at one example in the United States is Biden proposed this Build Back Better agenda, which had a lot of great stuff in it. And it was destroyed by the fossil fuel industry, period, end of story, right? And so then, so then that's where the rest of us need to get in the way and say, like, those politics cannot continue. And that's happening all over the world. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. And so I'm curious, your book obviously starts with the sort of thing of what we're up against and then moves into the idea that another world is possible. This is the mm-hmm. first two chapter headings. And yeah. so maybe we can dive into a little bit about what you see that other world being and, and what are the biggest opportunities for, for action and change? Yeah. And I wrote that chapter because I think so often people get paralyzed in their activism by a kind of a sense of despair. You know, everything is such a mess. Why should we even bother? And I really truly do believe that another world is possible. And it's not that different in some ways than the world we have. In other words, for example, we're living in cities, in apartments that are well insulated. We've got great public transportation. We have investment in people's futures. When people lose jobs because some industry is obsolete, people get a guaranteed basic income. So you think about all those kinds of things. They're completely, completely and easily within reach. And the things we need to do to get there have to do with taxing the rich and minimizing inequality, shutting down the fossil fuel and agribusiness industries, and just building up sustainable environments. And, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting is how sustainable cities are. In other words, that people living out in nature or whatever, driving there and flying, there's a sort of a fantasy of environmentalism that comes from the kind of history of white middle-class environmentalism that's just completely off when we think about sustainability. So when you think about it, the most sustainable place in the United States is New York City. And again, when people live densely or the mayor of Paris is a whole initiative, which I just love of the 15-minute city, you know, the idea of cities organized so Basically, 15-minute walk, you can get pretty much almost all your needs met, right? Those things are at bus rapid transit. One of my favorite things, initiatives in the world is bus rapid transit. It's happening a lot in the global south. The idea of buses having a preference over cars such that, you know, very cheaply, very quickly with just a little bit of political change, everybody gets around in ways that are incredibly, incredibly sustainable. It's just not, it's so weird to me when I think about this is, is that it's not rocket science. It's really not. Yeah. There, there are so many things that are so simple. And often I find that even a, a hearkening back to how people live even a hundred, 200 years ago, like that's not even, yeah, I, th- I think there's obviously an even deeper callback, uh, you know, to indigenous knowledge that I, that comes with sort of the circulism and understanding these sections. But even when you think about more recently, you know, the ways in which mass transit or streetcars were so much more ubiquitous in the early 1900s, or yeah. the ways in which things were built to last, having a hammer for 200 years was not an out of date hammer. It was a well-built tool. And I think so much of it is actually not even yeah, it's not, there are some of these new technologies that are, that feel like rocket science, new solar panels, things like that. These are some truly amazing technologies that come out. But there's also the more scalable stuff that are more cultural ends up being much more of a hearkening back, I feel like, you know, like can we repair yeah. what it was created, et cetera. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then like, how do you get there? There are countries that have rules that say that companies are responsible for the disposal of their products and that they have to last a certain amount of time. You know, I think about the fact that I grew up in a suburban home with a washing machine that was like 40 years old and it lasted until my mother died. 
And I now have a suburban home and I'm on my second washing machine in 15 years. Yeah. And so, so there's something about that things are not designed to last and you can actually regulate that lasting. And even, you know, to go back to your thing of like the movement for the right to repair, I think is crucial. And you think about computers and cell phones that, that so much terrible things are happening in mining in the global South, having to do with those rare earth metals. All you need to do is force the companies to take the metals out of the old phone and put them in the new phone. It's really, really simple. And why are we not doing those simple and obvious things that we're constantly, like those of us who read about this stuff, like, oh, what a great idea. We don't need to use plastic anymore because we can do da-da-da. I mean, I'm constantly reading these beautiful ideas of fabulously sustainable ways to do things. Why aren't we doing them? Because the interests of profit and the power behind that are getting in the way. Yeah, for sure. And so I wonder if we can move towards the sort of conversation around movement building, because mm-hmm. you know that I think is the thing that will hopefully take on this sort of entrenched power. So for anyone who's out there who's listening to this and is either new into activism or is just starting out, or, or maybe they're a new group that's just started, you know, maybe not individual, but also groups. What advice would you give to early stage climate activists trying to get their footing in to make change? So I've got a whole chapter on that, but I would say for my sort of basic, most core point is find the work that connects you with people who you enjoy working with and find joy in that work and really think about how that work's going to be useful and know that you're part of a team of millions around the world. So you don't have to do everything because what I find, you know, I run a community organizer training program at at my college. And one of the things that I find with, especially with young activists is like, as you start to peel away the layers of dominant thinking, and you start to understand the nature of what we're up against. It's like, oh my God, we have to do this and this and this and this and this, and you get overwhelmed. And then when you get overwhelmed, you then get into dysfunctional modes of doing too much or thinking what you're doing doesn't matter. So for me, it's really important to say to people, you know, again, we're a team of millions around the world and you need to add your oomph behind what we're doing, but you don't need to carry all of it and you don't need to carry all of it kind of in your soul. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Sort of finding yourself and your place within the movement. That's advice that I've heard a few times from some different folks. When I get start talking about how people do self-care, which I will get to in a second, because I think that's yeah. important. But before I get there, you a, had mentioned that you've been doing this for about 30 years. And so right. you, know, you have a big history. And of course, I'm sure in writing this book, you spend a bunch of time sort of looking back at different movements. You talk a lot about the New Deal, for example. And so I'm curious if there's anything that you think current activists can learn from the history of movement building. Yeah, I've so one of my favorite books about movements is by a guy named Bill Moyer called Doing Democracy. And one of the the deep insights of that book is that movements have different phases and they require different kinds of action at different times. Because there's a way, again, people sort of will sometimes pick their favorite flavor and think that that's the thing. So, you know, for example, civil disobedience awesome thing to do. Really appreciate people who do that work, have done it myself, will probably do it myself again. And it's a tool. It's a really useful tool. And so sometimes people get sort of, they have a tactic and they think it's a strategy. I mean, there's like, there's a tool and you think that that's the thing that's going to make it happen. But it turns out that any social movement you study, you will find had lots of different phases where lots of different strategies and tactics were required at different times. And so one of the things, one of the main points that you get if you read Bill Moyer's book, and it's not Bill Moyer's, the TV guy, this is a, this is a movement theorist, Bill Moyer's book, Doing Democracy, is that it's really important for there to be synergy between different folks. So for example, you know, there are the people who are on the street who are putting pressure on the system to kind of expose things, to change how people understand the nature of what we're up against, to, you know, say absolutely no to power. And then there are people who are legislators or who are like having internal dialogue with legislators. Both of those pieces matter. And we do best in movements when there's synergy between what social movement people call inside and outside strategies. And when there's synergy is when you say, we're each carrying a different part of this, but we're going to be respectful of each other and our differences. 
And that's what I think you learn if you study social movement history, that movements are complicated, they're long-term, and they always have different phases. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Before we go into the self-care piece, there's one more thing I want to dive into for a second, just because it's something that's come up a lot from different, again, in conversations about how people can how young activists or activists can start seeing themselves moving into this work. One of the suggestions often is about, you know, shopping around to different groups and trying to see how, you know, each group vibes with what they are trying to do with their skill set, et cetera. And obviously that I think is where partially probably where you're going with your chapter that's about finding your people. But I'm curious, given that you do run these workshops in your general on, on reasons, if you have any tips on people, like how you identify that, you know, if you're just walking around going to three or four groups, what are you looking for? What should they be looking for? How can you tell if you found your people and or even your type of action or group, et cetera? Yeah, wow. I would say that's a hard question. I don't have any quick tips. I think one tip I would give is that it takes a little while and then you're going to stretch. So there's one little metaphor that I like, which is this idea of, well, it's not really a metaphor, but anyhow, this idea that there's your comfort zone, there's your stretch zone, and there's your rip zone, you know? And so you want to step out of your comfort zone where you're like, oh, I'm not sure I could do what we're doing here, but you're stretching yourself because anything you do that's new is going to feel like a stretch, right? So you want to just say, okay, I'm okay being stretched. But then the rip zone is where you're being stretched so much that it's terrifying and traumatizing and terrible for you. So that would be one thing. And give it time because sometimes people, you know, I work with a group called Fossil Free California, and we are deep in the weeds of some complicated stuff. Folks show up and they're like, what? You know, and so we do a lot, you know, we have a buddy system. We always have somebody who's like on the chat explaining all the acronyms as we go. But you're going to feel when you first show up, it's going to feel a little awkward. So I would say just like any kind of new friendship, give it a while to feel awkward. Give it a while to feel like a stretch. But then really, if you feel like people aren't treating you well, then you should leave. Or if you just, you know, and it does take a while, I think, when somebody's new into an activist space to kind of know where you might make yourself useful. So I just think it requires patience. The world is not structured right now to have deep radical action transforming, right? So don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect it to be like, you know, some things where like, oh, you're being onboarded at a new job and it's all one, two, three, and it's all just gonna work because there's a slot for you and it's just a little matter for you to get to that slot. The world was not created, is not created right now to make changing systems of power easy. So it's going to be a little hard and a little awkward and you got to put up with that. Yeah, that's a solid advice. And so for folks who are working through this hard and awkward time, obviously taking care of oneself is an ongoing need. You have an entire chapter on self-care, but I also want to put to another question to you, which is one I've been asking everyone I've talked to for the last about six months, which is about how you personally manage climate anxiety. So perhaps Either you can tie those two together or we can take a, tackle one at a time. One question leads to the other. For myself, the way I tackle climate anxiety is by being involved because I find, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is just if the house is on fire, it really helps to be doing something. You just don't feel helpless when you're actually trying to put out the fire. That feels really good to me. It also feels really good to me to have, you know, I think my activism meetings are once, you know, I have a bunch of them that I do, but this, I have this one that's like a regular once a week meeting. That feels like going to church to me, you know? I'm with other people who care as deeply as I do, whose lives are as deeply committed to the transition as my life is committed to it. And so we practice together our, the, our kind of healing and meaning creating work of creating this better world. So that feels really solid to me. I think there's a way personally that I happen to be good at compartmentalization. Oh, uh, the other thing I wanted to say about that too is for those of us who are really in this movement, and you probably know this too, we know that there are thousands of things being done everywhere we turn. And so people who aren't involved think, oh my God, the world's on fire and nobody's doing anything. That's not true. There's a lot of people doing a lot of things and a lot of things are happening. There's a lot in play right now. So keeping yourself both 
in tuned with the lots of good things that are in play right now and keeping yourself in community with those people who are doing the work then makes you build a life that says my life has meaning and purpose and and perhaps we're going to make this happen so then the self-care piece is about knowing your own limits. You know, again, I'm 62 years old and I work mostly with people who are around 20 in terms of my, my job. And when I talk to the 20 year olds, I say to them, I want you in this work when you're my age. And I've been in this work since I was 20. That's when I first got involved in social justice work. And that means pacing yourself. It means not falling into that trap of, I have to do, you know, the world is on fire and so I need to, to not sleep, right? You need to sleep, you need to form relationships, you need to have joy, you need to have other things, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that I'm so pleased with actually about kind of almost everywhere I turn in social justice work right now, whether that's criminal justice work, which I do some of, or climate work or housing work, I see younger people really taking self-care seriously. And there's a whole rhetoric of self-care that was not the case when I was 20. When I was 20, if you didn't destroy your life for the work, you didn't really care. And so that's, I think, something really healthy in the movement. Yeah, no, I totally agree. There, some of the shifts towards radical rest and some of the conversations around trying to be trying to be the world that you need to see too, you know, like one of the, actually, I'm curious your thoughts on this. One of the big tensions that I have experienced in, in both of my work, but also more generally is this tension between the understanding that kind of the future world we're trying to build is I think one that is slower than our current world. So many of the solutions I think are partially helped by really just a slowing down, a four-day work week, mm -hmm. types of things that would slow down the capitalist machine and allow us to be present with each other and, and not just be sort of consume, 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 but give ourselves space. And I hear that, I'm like, okay, I should try to embody that slowing down. And yet IPCC report comes out and says, oh, we have a ever-closing window if we don't do stuff in the next like three years, things are really bad. And that is such a weird tension to try to embody a slower pace of life that you know is sort of the world you need, but coming right up against that sort of urgency that both the climate and also like, you know, grind culture of the world right now implies. I wonder how you sort of see that back and forth and, and how you navigate it. Yeah, that's such a, that's such a beautifully posed question. And I don't know if I can answer it as well as the way you just said that. But I think it's almost like that thing of being the eye in the storm. You know, it's like, yes, the work is urgent, which means I need to do my best. And if I'm going to do my best, that means doing it well, which means doing it at a proper pace and making it invitational. Because one of the things I love to think about, it's a real privilege in my life, given my work is that a lot of my work is bringing other folk into the movement. And then when those folk are in the movement, I've just multiplied myself. So rather than me working myself to the bone and being a horrible role model, I'm going to role model a beautiful life, a beautiful life that's got like, you know, sunshine and roses and happiness and all that kind of stuff. And I accomplish a huge amount, but I accomplish a huge amount by doing it within that zone of joy. Right. That makes sense. And so one more question before I go to the last couple, like how can people find out about it? Whenever I talk to someone who's done this much research, right, who's dove in this much, I'm always curious if there was something or maybe two things, if it's hard to choose, that, that struck you when you did all the work, you know, like that, that sort of stuck with you. You're like, oh, I didn't know this, or this was surprising, or man, more people should really know this. So I'm curious if in the process of putting this book together, did you have any of those moments and, and what were they? You know, I think the part of the research that was the most useful to me was the stuff that's in chapter four, which is the idea of what are the big scale solutions that get us there on time? And the book I would refer people to that was very helpful to me, it's just a quick, easy and actually beautiful read is called Drawdown. And it's like, okay, how are we going to, and maybe your listeners have already kind of heard that stuff, but just that idea that like, okay, in transport, what are the three things we need to do? Boom, done. In energy, what are the three things we need to do? So for me, reading that work on 
the large scale solutions that get us to where we need to get at the scale and time we need, and that they're all there, they're all technically viable. That for me was the most encouraging piece of research that I did for this book. Right. That makes sense. And yeah, Drawdown, I think, has done such a good job on creating that. They're, in their new stuff, if you haven't seen it, that's a recommendation. Super interesting. Their new project is all about how to help anyone make their job a climate job. And so it's like you work, no matter where you work, it's a series of steps to like try to get real climate action from, from within companies. So it's like, do you have an internal price on carbon? And some of these much more deeper questions rather than sort of the greenwashing that can also often come from some of these things. But this is actually like, no, no, if you want to hold your own company accountable, it's sort of a workbook on that. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really good. Yeah. And I have to say for myself, I think it's great that people who work in businesses do that work. And I know I work at a public institution and I'm working really hard on our sustainability management plan, right? Like everybody should do that. Pretty much everywhere you go, there is some climate work you should be doing, Any, in, especially any institution you're associated with. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And so if folks want to pick up your book or learn more, how can they? Uh, so my book is published in Canada by Between the Lines and in, in the United States by PM Press. Just, you know, go on the website and, and uh, do an internet search and you will find it. And I do, by the way, have a web page that has kind of all of my different writings. I have lots of kind of short writings on the climate. Just, you know, again, just put in my name and you'll find it. Cynthia Kaufman at WordPress.net. I mean, that, that's great. Um, yeah. And so, oh, and one other thing I would say, and, and on my um, own personal web page, I've, if you go to this, the part of the page that's about this book, it'll link you to where to buy the book. And it also has a document that's advice for action. That's a little more specific than what I say in the book. It is our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. And so I will throw to you for the last word of the show in just a half second. But before I do, I just want to thank you so much for being here. Cynthia Kaufman, author of several books and the most recent that we just finished talking about is called The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a Climate Justice Handbook. Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, we broadcast to about eight stations across Canada and also on the podcast. So anything you think it's useful for people to know? I guess I just want to say that we are in a crisis. The crisis is urgent. The best thing you can do is find a place and get involved and find your people. And it really is crucial that you get involved in serious climate work and that you do it right now. It's not easy.